Good morning, church. Our passage today is Psalm 2. The reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The, Lord's hold, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, we've been having quite uh, a spike in attendance, so um, it doesn't seem like this morning is, is too big of a problem, but... Um, over the next several weeks, if you could uh, just scoot in towards the, the middle, um, you may have noticed that we have a slide, because that's more helpful than me standing on stage and, and making an announcement. So um, as you guys see new people come in, if you don't know somebody, introduce yourself and, and help them find a seat. Uh, our hospitality team says, everyone here at this church is on the hospitality team. Uh, so... That means you don't need a name tag or a job title to help someone find a seat. So we can just smile and shake some hands and, uh, and help people find seats. So that's all. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, we'll get into Psalm 2 now. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, thank you for gathering with us this morning. Um, we're going to continue in our Psalm series, which means that we need to reflect on the purpose of the Psalms. And we're going to do this regularly throughout our time in the book. And so I want to point us back to this purpose statement. I've shortened it a little bit. But the purpose of the Psalms is to encourage and guide as we pray, hope, and wait. The purpose of the Psalms is to encourage and guide as we pray, hope, and wait. Don't you think that you need some encouragement to pray? Don't you think you need some guidance on what to put your hope in? Especially we need both encouragement and guidance while we wait. Waiting is, is the hardest part of Christianity. Just waiting for Jesus to finally come back for us. So the Psalms are, are this incredible book that encourage and guide us as we pray, hope, and wait. Last week we um, looked at Psalm 1, the, the first of the introductory Psalms. So Psalm 1 and 2 kind of serve as the, the preamble, the introduction to the whole book. So what themes we see in Psalm 1 and 2, we're going to see repeated throughout the book of Psalms. So in Psalm 1, we looked at um, these two ways. Psalm 1 guides us by reminding us, reminding us of these two ways of life, the way of the wicked that leads to death and the way of the righteous that leads to life. And it encourages us 
by reminding us that we will inevitably choose the way of the wicked, won't we? I heard two little amens on that. We will choose the way of the wicked. We already have. But it also encourages us by reminding us that Jesus has perfectly and permanently fulfilled the way of the righteous, not just in, his, in himself. He did that fully, perfectly, permanently in himself, but he did it on our behalf. That means even though we will inevitably choose the way of the wicked, as we stand before God, we are righteous because of Christ. There it is. So here's what, here's what Psalm 2 is doing. Psalm 2 is both encouraging and guiding us by preaching the gospel to us. It's very clear. And I hope that after uh, our time this morning, it becomes even more clear. It artfully yet simply preaches the gospel to us. Um, it, it has been said that in Psalm 2, we see the whole counsel of Scripture. And so I want to unpack Psalm 2 to help us. But here is our, our main thought that we'll see in Psalm 2, this gospel message that we see throughout the whole of Scripture. Psalm 2, we are rebellious. God is almighty. Jesus wins. Repent and believe. That's our, our main thought, but also our outline. We are rebellious. God is almighty. Jesus wins. Repent and believe. Y'all thought I was going to preach a Mark sermon up here. But we're going to stay in Psalm 2. We are rebellious. Verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now you might be wondering, how do I make this jump from um, Psalm 2 talking about the kings of the earth to then we are rebellious? How are how is Psalm 2, in talking about the kings of the earth being rebellious, how does that also mean that we are rebellious? That, what does that mean for my sin, my rebellion? Well, biblically, um, the king was a representative. He was both a representative to and for God and humanity. So the king would represent his kingdom to God. That means whatever the king was doing and the people's loyalty was in the king, they were, they were uh, accomplices. Now, it also works both ways, that God would give his instructions and his decrees to the king, and he would stand before the people and uphold them. So the king was this person that stood in between God and man. And so when the kings of the earth set themselves against God, it, it is not a jump for us to say, all humanity sets themselves against God. We will misunderstand scripture. We will misunderstand the gospel. We will get Jesus wrong for as long as we fail to believe that we are rebellious. And what we see in these first few verses is not only do we have this outer rebellion, we have an inner rebellion. We have an inner rebellion about us, this posture that our hearts, our desires, our longings are actually against God. 
We want freedom from him. It says, let us burst their bonds. Talking about, um, listen, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. The rebellious people believed that God had them in prison, that God had them in bondage. Do you know why? Because God's true freedom feels like bondage to rebellious people. God's true freedom feels like bondage to us because we don't know what true freedom is. We need him in order to be truly free and know what it means to be truly free. And so when we distrust him, when we don't believe that his freedom is real freedom, we become rebellious. And we, see, we, we call his loving embrace prison and we squirm our way out of his arms. So we have this inner rebellion about us that leads to our outer rebellion. These, this inner broken posture that leads to our bad activities, these bad deeds, right? So what we're talking about, this whole conversation, this is sin. That word sin it's not just these bad things we do, but it's the posture of our hearts. It's this brokenness within us that wants other than God, that distrusts God, that thinks, no, I know what's best for me, and I'm going to go get it. So we have this inner rebellion, this outer rebellion, and, and we call that sin. But what we see here in Psalm 2 is that we have some pretty overt, rebellious ways about us. Like, we, we are familiar with the fact that our sin destroys the world. Our sin destroys relationships. Our sin um, ha- has destroyed the cosmos. Like, nature tries to kill us because we came for God's throne. But there's also more subtle ways that we rebel. Um, there's one commentator that, that introduced me to a new phrase and a definition for that phrase that absolutely terrifies me. Suburban rebellion. Suburban rebellion is when we simply ignore God and do life our own way. Now, it's less violent, but it's just as rebellious. And it turns out this is my favorite type of rebellion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I have this, this way about me that just loves to fly under the radar. I like to be in the dark. Um, I go the speed limit because I don't want to be in trouble, not because I want to obey the law. Anybody else? Like, that's not, that's not really obedience. Exactly. So this inner rebellion leads to this outer rebellion. Now, what are we going to do about it? Because it's uncomfortable down here. The world's not a fun place to live. Life's not that enjoyable. We just sang a song about our sorrows and our griefs and our sufferings and how God knows them. So as, as we sit here and we feel those things, and our family members die, and we get a bad diagnosis, and we lose our jobs, and we're in relational conflict with, with people we're supposed to be siblings to. 
What are we going to do about it? Who, who's going to come for me? We have this longing for something to be done, but we're powerless to do anything about it ourselves. And anytime we try, all we're doing is coming for God's throne again. Psalm 2 actually sings in harmony with the whole of the New Testament. Galatians 1, 3 through 5 says, um, Paul is writing to this church in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Why? What is this grace and peace coming from? And why did he give himself for our sins? He did it to deliver us from the present evil age. We feel the present evil age. And what's going to happen? Jesus will deliver us. It's already begun. To deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father because he promised it. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's chaos today, but our future is bright. Ross Lester, the teaching pastor at Austin Stone, he says it this way. If you are anxious about the future, look farther ahead. It's, it's okay, you can applaud a quote. If you're anxious about the future, look farther ahead. If you're anxious about the future, look farther ahead. Every day is another day closer to Jesus coming back and setting all things right. The nation's rage, the people's plot in vain. Let's not forget who holds the world together. Okay? I like this. That's right. And Psalm 2 will encourage and guide us. Um, so let, let's not forget that we are rebellious. God is almighty. Jesus wins. Repent and believe. So we talked about we are rebellious. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. God is almighty. He who sits in the heavens laughs. You know, this is the only um, verse in Scripture, the only verse in Scripture that says God laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Last week, we learned a couple of uh, Bible study techniques. We talked about contrast and parallel. If you weren't here last week, go onto our YouTube channel. I think it's also on Spotify, and you can learn those two uh, study techniques, contrast and parallel. You're going to find some of that in here, and hopefully, some, as you pull some of that out, it actually makes you think about Psalm 1. But what, we, what we're going to look at today is um, something I'm calling rhythm and rhyme. Jamaica's got a bobsled team, y'all. <laughs> rhythm and rhyme. What's happening in rhythm and rhyme, it takes a little bit of work for us because we speak English. In ancient Hebrew, our rhyming structure wouldn't make sense. So like in English, we rhyme syllables that sound the same. It has nothing to do with what those words mean. Just listen to a child make a poem. But it has everything to do with how those words sound. Uh, feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. Get on up, it's bobsled time. That's right, rhythm, rhyme, rhyme and time. I never thought that would show up in a sermon. 
through God all things are possible. <laughs> rhyme and time makes sense in our rhyming structure in English. In ancient Hebrew, it wouldn't make any sense because in its context, those words don't work together. Ancient Hebrew. And don't forget, we base our lives on studying and, and learning and understanding an ancient Middle Eastern religious text. That is so weird and so cool. So we have to look at it how it was written. We, ha- we can't apply Western English reading techniques to an ancient Middle Eastern religious text. All the time. So in the Psalms, we see this rhythm and rhyme. Let's look at a couple of examples. Verses 1 and 5. Ancient Hebrew rhyming was with the similarities, not in sounds, but in meaning. Words and concepts sharing meanings, okay? Verses 1 and 5. Why do the nations rage? And then God will terrify them in his fury. Do you see how those two words work together? Rage and fury rhyme in ancient Hebrew. In verses 2 and 6, we see the kings set themselves. And then God says, I have set my king. Do you see those two concepts? Working together in verses 2 and 6. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. We can have peace because God has set his king. God has set his king. When when the nations set themselves, when the kings of earth set themselves, God has set his king. When the nations, when when the kings of earth rebel against God, God sends his heavenly king to earth. And when it says, I have set my king, that's a permanent statement. We plot, we make plans, we set ourselves and we take counsel, and we think we're doing such a good job learning all the wisdom. But God says, I've already set my king. We don't have to be anxious. It looks like the world is winning, doesn't it? It looks like Satan, sin, and death have won. Because like we already established, life's not fun. Life's pretty sad. It's hard. People die. We get sick. Credit cards. (laughs) Debt collectors. It looks and feels and seems like the world is winning, but do not be anxious. God is not anxious. God is sitting on his throne. He's already made a plan. He set his king. And this, this is not like an invitation to come fight. Like, I've sent my king. Go, go see if you can knock him off the hill. It's not that game. It's permanent. Jesus has won. I'm getting ahead of myself. God's almighty power and his almighty activity. Um, here's what it means for God to be almighty. God is almighty. That's what verses 4 through 6 are telling us. This is what it means. Church historian uh, Justo Gonzalez, he puts it this way. Almighty refers not only to the power of God in abstract, just that he, he has power, but also the activity of God in all things. So what does power require in order to truly be powerful? That it be acted upon. 
Now, how can someone act upon their power? They must be present where their power is meant to reign. So the God being almighty means not only that he rules, but that he rules here. That, that he's active here. He's present here. He uses his power here. We don't have to be anxious. God sits on his throne. Um, Jesus is the, the perfect fulfillment of this power and this activity, this power and this presence of God in his kingdom. And you know why God laughs? Because Do you know what God's plan was? That he would send himself to earth as a baby. Does anybody have a baby in here? Yeah. Like, isn't that hilarious? That our best attempts to fulfill our rebellion can't be thwarted by a baby. They will be thwarted by a baby. I got that backwards. Our best attempts at rebellion will be thwarted by a baby. And I got in trouble last week for not saying spoilers, so spoilers. If you don't know the end of the story, that baby grows up. He becomes a full-blown man, and he gets put on a cross. And when Satan, sin, and death think they've won, that cross was actually the king's victory. His death was his victory. You guys are awake this morning. This side over here. I need to hear something from over here. God has set his king. In the first six verses, we got to hear from ourselves, right? Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. We also got to hear God respond, and we should be terrified. I don't think we understand yet. So we hear from the rebellious world. We hear from God Almighty. Now let us hear from the king in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. If you've read the New Testament, that sounds familiar. I'll get there in a second. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, not just Israel, but all the world. In the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, um, remember what we said last week. If we're going to understand something from the Old Testament, we can't just splatter Jesus in there and then be like, look how awesome I am that I saw Jesus in the Old Testament. We have to actually see what the Old Testament is saying about Jesus. He tells us he's in there. And you're probably right about what you think about Jesus in Psalm 2. But let's, let's be responsible readers and let's understand what it's saying. We already said that Jesus is the king, that he's a king baby. But let's look at uh, these, these verses 7 through 9, when, what he has to say about himself and what God says to him. Um, what's the role of the king? The role of the king is to stand between God and humanity, God and his kingdom. The king represents his kingdom to God and to the people. He represents God's instructions. So when God says, I have a plan and Israel's king is my plan, he will defeat my enemies. He's reminding Israel of two fundamental promises that he made in Genesis 12 when he began his covenant. 
This is after we've sinned, after we saw the fruit on the tree, we took it and we ate it. We distrusted God. We rebelled against him. God says, I'm not done with you. And in Genesis 12, he calls one man out of nowhere. He says, I'm going to choose you and I'm going to make of you a people. And I'm going to make a promise with you that I'm going to send you somewhere. And when you get there, you're going you're to be with me. And you're going to bless the world. And guess what? The whole world is going to know who I am. That's what happened in Genesis 12. And so when God says here in Psalm 2, I've set my king on my holy hill. He's reminding a nation of the promise. You are my people. You belong to me. And I've called you to a place. Because we exist in, in this weird thing called space-time. God is bigger than it. And so how do we exist in presence with God outside of here? It's got to be here. And so he calls them to this land that's going to represent what happened before we rebelled and what's going to happen when he comes back and fulfills his victory. So he calls them to this land, this specific place that we know as either Israel or Palestine. And in this place, God has promised to be with his people. Now, God is everywhere. But this place has a very specific meaning that, that to us who don't understand omnipresence, we need this, this tangible reminder that God is with us. And so he calls him to the place and then he gives him a temple and he says, I'm going to be here forever with you. And we know how that goes. Genesis 3, the fall, the, the original sin keeps coming back. It keeps happening and so this, this Psalm 2 is a reminder that I, I've given you my king so that not only will you be my people, but my presence will be with you in a place. It won't be this abstract thing. It's a legitimate presence. God's covenant with Israel, represented by the king, serves to secure their identity and their presence with God in the land. Now, these two words, heritage and possession that we see in verses 7 through 9, these are, are just calling out God's presence. It calls out these two promises of identity and presence. And they're reiterated through Scripture. Why? Because we need to be reminded. And it's, remember, Psalm 1 and 2 begin the introduction to the Psalms. So that this is a theme we're going to see throughout and we'll come back to it. So now that we understand, when, when God places his promise on a king, he's, he's reminding all of Israel of the promises of, of identity that you belong to me, but also that I will be with you. Identity and presence. And it's only through those covenant promises that we can see Jesus. So understanding that, that God made a promise that through the king, identity and presence would be secured, and then every king from David on fails. And we're left wondering what's going to happen next. The Old Testament ends with that hanging thread that, that never gets tied off. And it feels like it could all just unravel. And then Jesus shows up. And twice, twice, not just once, 
It was repeated twice in the gospel stories. We see heaven crack open at Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration. We see heaven crack open and the voice of God calls out and says, This is my son in whom I love. Listen to him. It's an announcement that the guy you were waiting to replace Moses is here. The guy you were waiting to replace King David is here. The guy you were waiting to replace all the prophets that told you I was coming, he's here. I've set my king on my hill. And he will not be removed. I didn't know I was going to preach today. (sighs) Then we see finally... This is where Psalm 2 calls us to hope. Revelation 21.3. These identity and presence promises fulfilled in Jesus as this king. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Again, the heavens crack open. We hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We don't need any earthly kings anymore. We have God as our king and he's going to be with us. In his death and resurrection, Jesus won for himself both a people and a place. He won himself a people and a place to be present with his people. Now, what do the Psalms contribute to our faith? They encourage and guide us to pray, hope, and wait. And that word hope, if you're you're anxious about the future, look farther ahead. You have hope that Jesus wins. God has set his king on his hill, on his holy hill. Anytime in scripture you see that, that's Jerusalem. That's like where that place, that, that land where God said, I'll be there. That's his holy hill. You see the word Zion, that's what he's talking about. I've set my king there. He can't be moved. I'll make the nations your heritage. Israel as a physical kingdom never expanded beyond that little piece of land in, in the Middle East. So how can we understand these promises that the whole world will will be the king's heritage? It's Jesus. And the ends of the earth belong to him because he made them. And he'll defeat his enemies. We can hope that in the fact that Jesus has won and he will come back for us in that victory. We are rebellious. God is almighty. Jesus wins. Now, how do you respond to that? Amen. Amen. We repent and believe. We, we say amen and we agree, and then we repent and believe. Yes. If we look at who we are in verses 1 through 3, and we understand clearly that we are rebellious, and then we look at verses 4 through 6, and we understand clearly that God is almighty, how do you respond to that? You either say, no, thank you, or I'm sorry. When I was a kid and I would disobey my parents, they would repeat to me, okay, are you sorry because the consequences hurt? Are you sad that you got in trouble? Or are you sorry because you disobeyed the people you love? 
2 Corinthians 7.10 explains to us this, this type of sorrow, this, the, this difference in us that our flesh brings out this worldly grief, this worldly sorrow that's only sorry because we got caught. I'm only sad because my sin ruined my life. I'm only sad because people don't trust me anymore. I'm sad because the consequences don't feel good. That's worldly grief. And guess what? You're going to return to that. Now, now, if you recognize that in you and you repent of that, you say, God, I know this is in me. Take me deeper. You will go deeper into this, this godly grief. If you realize you need transformation, that you can't produce godly sorrow on your own, and you, you wait and you pray, and Jesus and his spirit will, will give you godly grief that leads to repentance. And then you'll be broken that your sin is such a crime against the almighty God. That this God who loved you with everything he had, you turned your back on him. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This isn't we pray the sinner's prayer and then we're good to go. This is the way that we live. It's, it's the posture of rebellion in our hearts is replaced with a posture of sorrow and grief over our sin. I'm going to read 10, and 12, 10 through 12 now. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, I must say, knowing that every single one of us is rebellious, God has every right, just bigger than the flood, just wipe us all out. Be warned. Be wise. You have an opportunity to turn. Turn to the king. Kiss the son. That weird phrase, that idiom, they were like, what does that mean? That's so uncomfortable to us in the West. It, that's where I'm going with communion, but I'll spoil it. It means draw near to the throne. It's Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We can draw near to the throne of grace. It means touch gently. You know, um, when someone would submit themselves to the king, they would get down and they would hold his hand. It's, it's both a recognition that, that I am your servant and you could just destroy me right now. Fear the Lord. Rejoice in trembling. Okay, you remember the rhythm and rhyme thing. I got to pull this in. When it says that the king will shatter his enemies, he will dash them like a potter's vessel. Like imagine that happening in your mind and you're a bystander and this angry man is just smashing these gigantic vessels. That shatter them like a potter's vessel and this rejoice with trembling, share a root word in Hebrew that's linking our fear of the Lord to what he could be doing to us. 
James A. Johnston, uh, one, another commentator, he, he says it this way. This, this quote captures what it means to fear the Lord. There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. If you rebel against him, you cannot hide. You will not be safe. But if you trust him, he'll spare you. He'll take you under his wing. There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. Now, repentance. This, this, this uh, fourth portion of Psalm 2, repentance. Uh, band, you can go ahead and come up. <clears throat> we need help repenting. Um, we need encouragement and guidance to repent. Thankfully, we have the Psalms. We see throughout Scripture um, this, this encouragement to repent. We already saw it in 2 Corinthians 7. But Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God. I don't even know the depths of my sin. God, search me and know my wickedness. Show it to me. And, and don't let me off the hook. But lead me in the eternal way. And the eternal way is, is that kiss the sun. It's drawing near to the throne, knowing that we'll have mercy there. Not run off and go try and make it right on our own, but draw near to the throne of grace. If you believe in the gospel that Psalm 2 is preaching to us, then we share in communion this morning as we take the bread and we take the cup representing the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. Every time we take, we proclaim the Lord's death and the Lord's victory until he comes back for us. We are rebellious. God is almighty. Jesus wins. Repent and believe. Please join me at the table.